Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast backed by unpopular demand. My name is Corey Hazelhurst, I'm my partner of propagandist Steve Haynes. Hello, Corey. Sorry to say, listeners, that in February we overpromised and underdelivered. We said that we would have less regular episodes, maybe fortnightly, but instead we haven't put out any over the last two or three months. Maybe we even tried to deceive ourselves that this was possible and just made an honest mistake. Anyway, on the subject of overpromising and underdelivering. Boris Johnson's government. There's a Queen's speech this week. What does it tell us about where the UK is heading? of living crisis. Inflation, I think, is officially at 7%, but it's more than that on essentials. John Allen, who, as you'll know, listener, is the chair of Tesco, said we're going to see real food poverty for the first time in a generation in the UK. You've got the price of petrol going up 30%. You've got figures suggesting that 2 million adults can't afford to eat and are skipping meals. So obviously, in the Queen's speech, you'd assume the government would take drastic, urgent measures about this. What did the government have to say on the cost of living, Steve? Not a lot. Apparently there's no money to do these things. Uh, All the money got spent up as part of the uh, pandemic relief, and uh, now we just need to tighten our belts. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? That's not how the economy works, isn't it? No, it's not how the economy works at all, and it's very much demonstrative of the the lack of, not even vision, just, just basic common sense solutions that you might actually be able to find to, to some of the to some uh, problems like for instance there have been uh, rumors doing the rounds uh, that uh, Liz Truss has been basically pushing for the government to make the debt that was accrued to, from the during the pandemic to treat it like the war debt from the second world war i.e. it's something that gets paid off over a very very long time just due to the fact that it was necessary for national survival Apparently, that's not going to happen. That's not something that the uh, Treasury is interested in. That's not something Johnson is interested in. Even though, it's actually a pretty sensible idea. Who had Liz Truss thinks about Keynesian economics on their 2022 bingo card? I know I didn't. Uh, There's an interesting question, which I think we're going to try and talk about in a future podcast, on why is it the government spent an absolute shed load of money keeping the economy going during the pandemic shutdown? And now, as soon as you hit a cost of living crisis, the government isn't wanting to take solutions now. So apparently Boris Johnson's at his cabinet for non-fiscal solutions to the cost of living crisis. Which is absolutely mental, simply simply because the cost of living crisis is a financial issue. You cannot resolve this without there being... Uh, you know, financial uh, solutions to it. Now, that's not to say there might not be some things that you could do around the edges which wouldn't be beneficial, but you're talking about tinkering around the edges and marginal gains. Like, I think some of the ideas that were being talked about were like changing, you know, how often you need to go get your car MOT'd and, and things like that. Sure, that would probably actually benefit people, uh, rather benefit drivers in a lot of ways, um, but ultimately it's not going to make a massive difference to, to the people who are most struggling 
if just be, if if only because most of them are let, the people who are most struggling with the cost of living crisis are less likely to drive. No, a, a, a non-fiscal solution to the cost of living crisis is like trying to find a non-food solution to hunger. Really, in the debates over the Queen's speech, so Boris Johnson promised action in in days, and then changed that to promising action in months. I mean, this is a a, a genuine a general thing with Johnson's government in that. They say, oh, we've got a plan, we've got a solution, we'll, we'll act on this very, very quickly. And then it just gets kicked down the road. How long, like, I believe as part of the, his election campaign to become Conservative Party leader, he talked about having a plan to deal with social care. That never really materialised up until the point it basically just turned into, oh, we're going to increase uh, national insurance. And that was the entire plan. Clearly, if something had been said, there was no actual truth behind it, and it was just said for a soundbite to, to sound good in the moment. You can't possibly, Steve, suggest that Boris Johnson is saying things that may or may not be true to get himself out of a tight spot that might create problems for him future further down the line. This isn't a Prime Minister I know and love, Steve. There's a Prime Minister you love, currently? <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about Harry Wilson, but... <laughs> No, but he, he obviously, I can't wait for the Tory back base to say, and Boris Johnson looked me in the eye and he promised to me that we'd have a non-fiscal solution to the cost of living crisis. <clears throat> More seriously, so Labour's been calling for an emergency budget because it's a, well, the clue's cost of living crisis, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, the Treasury's denied that we're going to have, that an emergency budget was coming. There is a budget in the autumn, but by the autumn, things could be a lot worse than they are now. So you're already seeing citizens advice bureaus, where you've got more cases coming in, they tend to be more complex needs. As I say, you've already got too many adults who can't who are skipping meals. Inflation on non-essentials, I think it was some like margarines going up thirty percent. I think I mean Jack Jack Monroe has done some really good work on this about how okay the basket of goods for inflation might be seven percent, but when you're looking at basic goods in supermarkets, it was. Significantly much, higher, yeah, yeah, yeah. She uh, she did some quite good stuff in relation to I think it was. Asta, where she basically basically named and shamed and said, look, this is what the prices for all of these things are. Then she went back in and the, a couple of weeks down the line after basically being told, we're going to do something about this. And they actually had, it wasn't as low as it had been, but it they had genuinely taken action to cut their profits on those, off of those items. Uh, the Queen's speech, Steve, I suppose the government could have offered some fiscal solutions to the cost of living crisis. They could, for instance, have announced a massive house-building programme. They could indeed have done that. However, it turns out the target of 300,000 homes a year to be built by 2025 isn't likely to be met. I mean, that has massive implications for... I think I'm right in saying record numbers of young people living with their parents. And the Conservatives used to be about creating property-owning democracies, whereas now it seems like just for electoral reasons they are only trying to benefit... Essentially, pensioners are own their own home. Yeah, and uh, like you can see even with some of their solutions to this uh, to this issue, in that they're rather than you know, as you say, building um, you know sufficient housing or taking poli- taking action that would see the house of pro- the the cost of housing um, going down, they are kind of basically just trying to recreate you know the right to buy, but uh, but they basically expanded it or look talking about expanding it to um, housing associations. Which, on the face of it, 
yeah, kind of that might be a way to get more home ownership. But again, the people who live in those home associations are, I think the average age is something like 55, 56. So it's not the people who are struggling to buy necessarily. Um, and in terms of like the wider demographics. So you're essentially, uh, just gone for another, uh, another nice headline that doesn't actually solve the problem. And the, the reality is there are actually people within the Conservative Party who are recognizing this, this issue. Tim Montgomery, who has a very mixed record of kind of like takes and views in a number of different ways, has uh, recently were kind of, um, said on Twitter that, that the Conservatives need to grasp with this because as you say the conservatives have been all about kind of expanding home ownership and things like that partially due to the fact that if you if you own a home you're more likely to vote Tory but you've got to have one maybe even two generations of people who are potentially not going to be able to buy homes until very late in life if at all that are never going to that are probably going to be so set in their ways by that point that they're not going to ever vote Tory. So from, across the electoral long term, it's it's a terrible idea, and actually as a solution to an actual problem that are, that is affecting people, it's a terrible thing as well. No, so we've talked at length about the diverse nature of the Conservative Voting Coalition from 2019, and how essentially you've got those in the North who want to see proper levelling up, want to see more investment in their areas, and then you've got those in the South who tend to be richer, tend to be more old-school Tories. What's happening is not enough is happening on the cost of living to support struggling families. Nothing's happening on levelling up, which we have talked about in a couple of episodes already. There is a levelling up bill, a levelling up and regeneration bill, uh, which was announced, which will devolve powers to revitalise high streets, prevent shops from standing empty, That which is... Fine. However, as we talked about on the podcast months ago, actually, what he's needed to level up is a lot of cash and a lot of proper, well, a lot of proper cash, a lot of proper devolution. That's not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And where you do have opportunities to genuinely level things up and, you know, put infrastructure investment in areas that, that, that could be massively beneficial, the government is in fact cancelling it. They've basically scrapped the second leg of HS2. So, like an area which, could massively use it and would definitely be a part of any meaningful um, levelling up agenda, they've decided not to do it. I assume because a load of like home counties Tories have basically gone, oh, we don't like HS2. Well, and this is the other leg of the um, coalition, isn't it? So you've got, yeah, Southern Tories spooked by the Lib Dem victory. And hello, Mark, by the way, uh, in Cheshire and Amersham, which was essentially spooked by, basically, I think that the Dems said the Tories were going to build every blade of grass between you know, here and Sherwood Forest. But then you've also got it's those sort of blue wall Tories who are massively pissed off at the culture war stuff, like setting off a Pratt Channel 4, who massively went against the Tories and local elections. It turns out, Steve, there were local elections last week in places that weren't Birmingham. No, I don't believe that. It was, it was news to me, Steve, honestly. But apparently, where those elections happened, not that we care about them, Steve, the proper elections <laughs> took place in Birmingham. The only ones worth worrying about. But in other, in those other far-off mystical places, places like Donny Raab's seat, which I've forgotten the name of um, temporarily, 
the Lib Dems did very, very well. Fundamentally, there was some evidence as to what the, the root cause of that is. So I think it was it was either today or yesterday. Um, Times Radio did a focus group um, from I think it's one of the one of the. Um, the it was Tiverton and Honeyman. Honeyman, yeah, 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 that was it. So it was like a true blue. True Blue say, I think it's one of the ones that's up for a by-election. It's up for a by-election. Well, it's the Neil Parrish. I was looking for tractors and accidentally found porn. Yes, so it's uh, Deepest Darkest Devon. Um, The website or... (laughs) Is that... (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that that, that seat, um, they did a a focus group there. And the findings were basically just... You know, they've not turned against necessarily the Conservative Party as an institution. They have definitely turned against Boris Johnson. And it is 100% down to the fact that Boris Johnson is still in power, um, that, uh, that they are basically turning away, um, from the Conservatives, uh, and towards alternatives. Now, given it's Devon, um, uh, they're not turning towards Labour, they're turning towards the Lib Dems. And even if they can't, I think the, the view was, uh, that, that was given from the focus group was, largely going to be ineffective and not be able to make a massive difference in Parliament, but they'll be a very good local MP. It's it's quite clear that people are prepared to um look elsewhere um for alternatives if they are if they do not feel the Conservatives are um serving their best interests. And as long as Boris Johnson is in power, then these people are not going to consider the Conservative Party to be serving their best interests. And apparently Boris Johnson has said that you'd need a flamethrower to get him out of Downing Street. Which I don't understand why. Because, like, if you look at, like, Maggie Thatcher, she stayed on probably longer than she should have in terms of, like, the party politics of it all and everything. But there was a reason she 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 held on. She had an ideology. There was something she wanted to do. She genuinely thought she was the only person who could do it. Tony Blair probably stuck up, stayed around a little bit too long in some form. Again, there was something. There were things he wanted to do. There was a, a, a there, there was a belief behind what he wanted to achieve. Johnson doesn't have that, so it's a, at this point it just becomes a case of what are you hanging on for? I suppose. Well, as you say, I watched the new Labour documentary over a few weeks just just to get a break from the election campaign, which tells you something about <laughs> you about me, which I probably shouldn't really admit in public. Um, but I think what's clear from that is that actually there were genuine policy differences between Brown and Blair, yep. and Blair genuinely wanted to safeguard his agenda of foundation hospitals, academy schools, all those kind of public sector choice, you know, all those good old-fashioned proper socialist ideas. I think what's clear, though, is that Boris Johnson genuinely thinks, fervently and passionately, Steve, that he should be Prime Minister. Yeah, and that's that's about it. And I think I think Raphael Baer kind of like summed it up when he was uh, giving his um, point of view on the on the Queen's speech in the in the Guardian that this Queen's speech was essentially just a a, a political agenda aimed at at keeping Boris Johnson in power and not a lot else. There's a lot of there's a lot of thing cruel in it. I have to say. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of stuff. There's Great British Railways, isn't there? Taking control of. Railway can networks and things. Yeah, fine. There's a new football regulator in there in some form, which like I'm guessing is probably all right. I mean, you're the football fan. Football needs regulation. Yeah. I mean, since over the last... Yeah. yeah um, says the Oldham Athletic fan. Oh, <laughs> a pub quiz question there. <laughs> uh, 
again, there's stuff on finance regulation. There's things about trying to outlaw what P&O did, which I thought was against the law anyway. So um, anyway, but what there isn't is that, so the government is going to fall or stand on what it does about the cost of living crisis. And it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't have an answer. It could have house building as a solution if they want a fiscal solution. Um, as opposed to a non-fiscal solution, the chuff that means. I mean, they could try not raising national insurance as well, but no. It could maybe, Steve, act to fill 100,000 vacancies in the NHS, because that feels like the kind of thing that you might need to employ a lot of people. Yeah, especially as the NHS is, um, you know, one of the biggest employers, never mind in the UK, in the world. You know, like, <laughs> fulfilling those um, uh, vacancies and would be make a massive difference, potentially, to a lot of localised economies. I guess the problem is that you might need to have a plan and do some training Abs- and think about yeah. it and... It's not a bridge either. I don't no. think if it's not if it's not a massive piece of infrastructure, I don't think really, really Boris Johnson really cares. And instead of that, and rather than call for the emergency budget, Michael Gove went on television and made lots of funny noises. <laughs> yeah, that was a very odd interview. I, I don't even know what to say about it. To be honest, it is so in the spirit in which this podcast is uh, is, is made, in which we we like to look for the best of people, Steve. Even Phil Willis. Okay, maybe not Phil Willis. But most <laughs> other people, you know, we are charitable. So I'm going to, I'm not going to defend Michael Gove. That would be an absurd thing to do. <laughs> in the similar way, in the Brexit referendum, he has this, you know, we've all, we've had enough of experts, which got, I think, slightly taken out of context yeah. because it was a, essentially about the economic impact of Brexit. And there is a massive economic impact on Brexit. We are going to talk about Brexit, Steve, whether you like it or not. Maybe not this podcast, but soon. <laughs> and I think what Michael Gove was essentially trying to say was, look, we've had lots of economists who didn't predict the financial crash. They predicted it before and it hasn't happened. It could be different this time. But I think that's kind of, it's a slightly nuanced point that got mangled and kind of became this kind of five or ten second clip. It became emblematic of a certain kind of yeah. Remainer voters' view of what the Leave campaign was about. Yeah. Um, now, I think what Michael Gove was trying to say in that interview was essentially that what needed to happen was, it's similar to what Boris Johnson has said, to be fair. There'll be action in the days and months ahead. Like, calm down. We don't need a big news story. Um, we are going to do I something. from this government. Well, in the, yeah, well, there is that. But he, so he was essentially trying to sort of calm everyone down. The thing is, the way you don't calm someone down or producing the illusion of calm is to produce four or five different accents in 20 seconds. Yeah. Because then... If the accent becomes the story, <laughs> then that's the story, isn't it? Like, just go on television and say, we know it's... And this is the thing, I think, is the most... The, the, the worst thing about this is it makes the government look contemptuous of the pain that families are going through. Absolutely. And it makes it look like they don't think there's a crisis when there absolutely is. I mean, yeah, I mean, a classic example of this is, is it was it Lee Anderson, um, the Tory backbench MP? Um, who, uh, basically did a classic line. And, and this is a, not, not a new line. I remember back in the long, long ago, uh, when, uh, when, when my rosette was, uh, not red. And, uh, I know. Um, excuse me, is that compliance? <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
uh, and, and I was at a hustings, and the uh, Tory candidate couldn't be there for various reasons. But one of the um, but, but, but a replacement was found for her, which was uh, one of the local, I think, still a Tory councillor at that point. It's Randall Brewer. I can't remember when he. Was. Oh no! Yeah. So he lost in eighteen. Yeah. He? Um, so yeah, he would have been, uh, would have been a, still a councillor at that point. Um, but somebody asked a question at the hustings about, um, you know, about food banks or whatever. And, you know, pretty much everybody else on the, on the panel, including myself, basically said, yes, food banks are, you know, it's good that they're there, but they shouldn't need to be there. You know, standard sorts of things, put in whatever their party line was and kind of moved on. The Conservative representative basically gave the same statement that um, Lee Anderson did, that it's, well, a big thing with these sorts of uh, the, the sorts of individuals who come, they said they've just not learned how to cook properly. Um, and it's just like you could literally hear the uptake, uh, the, like the, the intake of breath from everybody in the uh, in the church hall we were in. This is so it, it's not this this view is not an isolated thing to just one bad apple within the Conservatives. It is something that does exist within a, a a significant part of the Conservative Party. And it's just so delusional and out of a whack with reality that I, I just genuinely don't understand how they get to come to this conclusion. Didn't something similar happen in 2017 as well? I feel there were a couple of times when yeah. Conservative MPs were basically saying there wasn't a problem. Or I, I swear one of them was Dominic Raab. Probably. Um, Sounds like a Raab thing to do. Yeah, so here we go. So yeah, so Raab said that people who use food banks typically don't do so because of poverty, but because they have an occasional cash flow problem. Or isn't poverty, poverty just a <laughs> cash flow problem? Like, also businesses have cash flow problems. <laughs> like, people don't normally. Or if they do, it's not a consistent thing, which is what food banks are dealing with really? these days. No, a household income budget is not an economy. Yeah. To reverse the phrase. Um, but it's so, so, you're right, it's, it's symptomatic of a much greater problem, which I think is also that a lot of the Conservative Party just do not understand what it's like. Yeah. I think the other, and, and also want to assume that if you're down, if you're in that position, then it must be, it can't be because of any sort of collective problem or because of any structural problem. It must be because you've not worked hard enough. Yeah, it's like, you're like, like it's the pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps notion of, 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 of success. It's like everything boils down to the, to the individual, which, like, as anybody who's actually, you know, worked with or seen firsthand, um, people who are, you know, on the poorer end of the spectrum, like, it's not that they're not working hard. It's 100% not, uh, but, but 100% not that. And nine times out of ten, some of the hardest working people I've met, met are the people who end up working two, and sometimes in some cases, three different Absolutely. jobs just to make ends meet. Uh, I think, and I think the problem here is the government is leading with its chin on issues like this. And it's going to get punched in the face. Especially as you, as you say, going back to that notion that they're not prepared to look for financial solutions. Um, to to the issues people are facing, these sorts of things will either they will be forced to take action, um, but it will be too little, too late, or at least from a political perspective, not soon enough to actually gain any benefit from it. And you can already see that when this happening, when it comes to the notion of the windfall tax on energy companies and things like that, we're already seeing Rishi Sunak starting to say things like, we're leaving nothing off the table, which is very different compared to what was being said previously. 
it would not shock me if come 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 the autumn come come the time of the autumn statement that was announced in some form. But by which point you'd have basically had you know what six months plus of um, Labour basically saying this is our policy, this is our policy, and then the government enacting Labour's policy. Yeah, you try and steal your opponent's clothing in politics to and, and take your those ideas as your own, but. When people are suffering already, and you're dilly-dallying and delaying for seemingly no good reason. Mm. No, it, it's it, it's nonsense. It doesn't really make any sense as a strategy. You, I, mean, I think the government is trying to be belligerent as well, and leave the on some of the culture war stuff. Um, we've talked already about the privatisation of Channel 4 for some reason. Um, Apparently it needs to compete with Netflix. That's literally their reason. It's like... Doesn't need to compete with Netflix. Not every business needs to compete globally. <laughs> no, um, but I think things on uh, there's other things out there on sort of the, uh, more bills on clamping down on the right to protest and a, a bill of rights, not a human rights act, Steve. Yeah, that's wishy washy and liberal and European. It's a British bill of rights. Yeah, which for British values like. Clamping down the right to protest. The hilarity, I think, is going to come if that Bill of Rights actually does come into fruition there, where just because of how this government works and their lack of attention to detail, I like it would not shock me if like the uh, their own Bill of Rights that they passed was used against them in relation to cracking down on you know no. the right to protest because you can guarantee there will be something in there about freedom of expression and freedom of speech because they kind of have to be in there and if there isn't then that's a major issue in and of itself well it's going to prioritize freedom of it's going to prioritize freedom of speech steve because as we know that is massively at risk from left-wing snowflakes who want to take down statues of anyone who says anything <laughs> um and also on, on Brexit as well, and we should probably end with that, given we've almost had half an hour, and I've really forgotten how to do these, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Oh, God, yeah. Northern Ireland border, Steve. Remember that? I, I do. Mm. So there has to be an open border in Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement. And so there were a few different solutions, weren't there? Yeah. They could have ensured that Britain was in the, a single market in the customs union, yeah. and then you wouldn't need to have border checks on the border. They could have done the Theresa May solution, which resolved the issue that that issue. But Boris Johnson explicitly, I believe, mm. resigned over that. He did it with the. Well, I don't. I, someone resigned over it. I think. I think David Davis resigned first, and then Johnson resigned about uh, two months later over the same issue. <laughs> Possibly. Mm. But this, if you remember, listeners, if you remember season four of Brexit, this was the Northern Ireland backstop, not to be confused with Northern Irish wicketkeeper. Or you could do what Johnson did, which is the solution that Theresa May rejected because she said that no Prime Minister of the UK could ever accept it. Hilariously. Um, just like no Prime Minister could ever break the law and not resign. Which was to essentially have a front stop yeah. in which you have the checks on the Irish Sea. And you'll never guess how excited the DUP were by that, Steve. They were delighted. Actually. So mm. they, they love being separated from the rest of the Union. It's literally what their name says, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the, uh, the, 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 the the Democratic, not quite unionist party. <laughs> the de-unionized party. <laughs> and, the, and the government doesn't like the bill that it's negotiated. And because, if you remember, Steve, it fought the election on the catchy slogan, 
let's ensure we renegotiate the deal we've just negotiated with the EU and talk about Brexit for another 15 years. Yeah. We're going to junk the protocol, which has made everyone angry with us, especially the Americans, which I'm guessing was the idea. Yeah. Well, there's also just like, it's also the fact that they've, they've kind of started talking about, oh, we're going to drunk, uh, junk the protocol and all of that sort of stuff. To it, But at the same time, they've also said, but we're, no, we're not going to actually get into a trade war with, with Europe because... They know that that would be ridiculously bad. We kind of are going into one though, aren't we? But here's the thing. They've basically said, no, we're not going to put any tariffs on things or, or, or anything like that, which is the kind of thing you would need to do. So if you're not prepared to actually back up these actions with, uh, with further actions, you're just basically going to end up in a situation where Europe gets to penalise us and then well, we're not going to do anything about it. Well, so... Uh, if there's anything that we knew about what the EU is going to do, it is that the mm. EU takes its own regulations extremely seriously. Absolutely. And so there is no way in merry hell that they, they can't just stop checks. Because if you were to stop checks from on the Irish border into Calais, it's a blooming smuggler's paradise, isn't it? Because obviously as soon as it comes in from... Uh, you've got beef with anthrax in it or whatever it is they put it into a daughter that goes in across across the border and then it can go anywhere in the EU. Yeah. So obviously the EU isn't gonna allow that. Yeah, you can't have like ham popping up in Italy which is just painted pink and isn't like we'd be at war with Italy again. So the UK can not issue checks. But then again, it just becomes a smuggler's problem that's on the other side, doesn't yeah. it? You know? Yeah, it's just everybody can just send stuff in our way. You will, it, Before Brexit, you had stories on food adulteration being something criminal gangs moving into because the, the penalties were less than it was for things like drug dealing. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like internationally, like there are really random, random things that are billion do- dollar markets internationally, like soy, fake, fake soy sauce. Like is something that gets like d- like produced and like smuggled all over the world. Do you know what they put in it? I don't know. Oh. I don't know, but it's not real soy sauce. But it's but it gets produced and, and, and as such, just doesn't have quite the, that umami flavour you're after. I guess. <laughs> Yasmala Lenghi speaks in the podcast. <laughs> I, 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 Brexit. I don't know. I, I just don't. They might think it's a secret election winner. They might think it's a secret election winner to paint Keir Starmer as a massive Remainer. And they might think it's an ele- apparently it's an election winner to fight the 2015 election all over again and say that we're... Like, Labour will destroy the union and do a deal with the SNP. And we'll just go, have you not seen? Like, <laughs> you, you, you are literally setting up for Irish reunification. You can either have strong and stable government with Boris Johnson or chaos with Keir Starmer. <laughs> I just don't... Who's the strategic genius who thought of that idea, eh? Anyway. On that note, (laughs) I've already driven Steve to the brink of despair and we've only done one episode back after an almost uninterrupted six-year break. To keep us going for another six years, we'll need lots of coffee, but more importantly, we'll need the backing of good, solid men and women. Thank you to all the champagners who've kept faith with us through what I'm going to call the wilderness years of <laughs> champagne, um, which will no doubt return in four more years. 
If you want to hear the first episode that we're going to do probably after this, and we're definitely going to open wine for it because I've not drunk in at least two days, where would you have to go to hear such pearls of wisdom? You could head over to patreon.com slash notenoughchampagne, where for but a few pounds every month, you can gain access to uh, unique episodes that we'll be recording uh, on a much more frequent basis moving forward. (laughs) Um, uh, Almost one every four months. Um, as well as uh, you know our, our, our hot takes and random like tidbits and thoughts on on various issues. Um, so yeah, head over there, um, check it out. It only cost you a couple of quid, and uh, everything goes towards helping us uh, run and cover the costs of the uh, podcast. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. Happy belated birthday, James. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Flicky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Oh, oh good. <laughs>